Hi, everybody. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. It is January 4th, 2022, the second day of Shvat 5782. I am, as usual, um, broadcasting from Israel um, on a topic that has um, been in the headlines or maybe not enough in the headlines this past week, especially here in Israel. Um, a very difficult topic. I'm warning you actually ahead of time. Um, in case for somebody this would be difficult to listen to and trigger some things, I'm going to be talking about um, Chaim Walder, the alleged not convicted, the accused, the alleged uh, pedophile and serial sexual abuser who committed suicide last week after a court of rabbis and other prominent figures in Israel heard testimony from 22 of his victims, and apparently um, that was just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Um, and um, and he committed suicide after it came out, what they had said, and the, the evidence that was piling up that a lot of the suspicions, accusations, rumors that had been flying for quite a few years um, were apparently true. The reason, perhaps, that this um, became a bigger story than, unfortunately, some of the similar stories that we've had is that he was a very well-known author, specifically of children's books on how to empower children. On He won, had won awards. And this is someone whom, for many, especially in the ultra-Orthodox world and the, and the Orthodox world, but not only, um, his books were on everybody's shelves. And that's, of course, been another um, discussion that's happening here what to do with the books, what to do with the so-called words of wisdom that he put out. Are they still relevant? Anyway, I'm very grateful to have an expert on trauma and also, of course, on, on sexual abuse. Um, social worker Miriam Friedman, who is joining me here. She's from her home in Beit Shemesh. Miriam, thank you so much for uh, agreeing. It actually, I have to tell my listeners, it was not so easy um, to find somebody. First of all, I, I very much wanted to have a woman for very personal reasons. Um, and a lot of uh, people, both lay people and religious leaders and even therapists are kind of wary to come out publicly um, with some of their opinions and, and ideas. And so I really do appreciate you doing that. I know this can't be easy for you as well, but you're very experienced and came so highly recommended. And I'm glad I don't know you professionally at all. Um, so I really, I really do thank you. Um, and hopefully for my listeners who are still listening, because it seems like there are just so many people out there for whom this is such a difficult and sensitive topic. Um, but what we can do perhaps to prevent more of this from happening in the future so what are your thoughts on uh, on what we've been reeling from in the past few days here? And just it's interesting hearing, you know, just in your introduction that it was difficult to find someone um, to speak out. And, you know, I, I didn't mean you were like the 40th on my list and I was scraping no, the bottom and, of the barrel. Not at all. Not at all. It's interesting to me. And I think that it's actually very representative of the problem that even in this moment, you know, this moment that we find ourselves in, in history where we're being faced with such a, uh, you know, hugely um, impactful trauma as a community and as a society, that people who are involved in this field are hesitant to raise their voice and to speak out um, is, you know, part of, I, I think, this, this moment that we find ourselves in and part of the problem that, you know, there are moments that happen in, in in time, and I think that we're standing at one of them, 
where we're standing at a precipice of like something big has happened. And it is a moment that we are, in my opinion, called on to take sides. Mm -hmm. There are times when we can be quiet and times when we can be neutral. And there are moments that come when you have to speak up. Um, so that's, that's very much kind of the moment that I'm, that I'm feeling now. And I'm sorry to hear that people are hesitant to speak up mm -hmm. that, you know, this is, this is not something as humans that should be confusing. And I think that there's a lot of talk back and forth and, you know, this rabbi says this and we don't want to slander people or right. we don't know, or, you know, all of these other, um, things that that come into the conversation that in my opinion are such distractions from from the main issue and are such a sign of people losing the plot you know mm -hmm. we know as a society that um in prisons in the prison population child molesters are considered unsafe in prison right, right? they sometimes get killed in prison they sometimes are held uh separately they're the lowest of the low even in prison which is saying something even yeah. in prison right your common prisoner knows how completely abhorrent and despicable and unacceptable this this behavior is. And yet we in our in our communities and religious communities and society start getting confused and um, with, you know with all these different issues that enter into it. And it's baffling to me. It's baffling to me that when you know your common convict in prison is very clear on how horrible this is, mm -hmm. that you know, people who are grappling with religious laws and, um, you know, in, in these moral behavior, moral yes, behaviors, can't see this clearly for what it is. And well, I would say maybe just to be really devil's advocate here for a second, <laughs> that because there are so many moving parts here, for example, the chief rabbi of Israel went to pay a shiva call, he went to pay a condolence call to the family, for which he received a tremendous amount of criticism. And then there were other people who said, but his family are victims too. So, you know, he, he, by going to pay uh, a call to the wife and to his children, he, he's not saying that what the, what Walder did was correct. He's, he's, you know, this family is going to suffer for the rest of their lives. I mean, with the last name and, you know, and, and different issues and some of the very prominent people have, in my opinion, erred and come out without a very clear statement that we need to do whatever we can for people who were abused, not just his own victims, um, which probably number in the hundreds, but for anybody who was a victim of sexual abuse, because this is coming out for them. And there have been suicides. Um, one of his victims apparently committed suicide last week after he did. And then uh, I've heard of at least one case where someone who wasn't a victim of his but this just put her in a terrible place, also committed suicide. And, and so then there's that issue, too, of suicide. And there's the issues, which I'd really like you to get into, of what do we do with our children? What do we tell our children here? And, and who should be telling them? Mm -hmm. Should this be, you know, not everybody's going to come to a therapist now like you. So you have a school system because this was so public. And people have his books. Do you throw out his books? Do, do the teachers deal with this? Do the parents deal with this? What if the family is the problem? Um, you know, they're definitely, like you said, I mean, this is a chance. If you're standing on a precipice, this is an opportunity. Can mm -hmm. we save other people now? Are there people who have been quiet up until now that maybe now could find the strength in a different atmosphere to come out and say, yeah, uncle so-and-so is 
molesting me every time we go to the house or whatever it is. I think it depends so much on the response that we give right now. Mm -hmm. So in the therapeutic community, that certainly has been happening. Um, I myself and, you know, many colleagues that I've spoken to um, just anecdotally have been flooded over the past I'm week sure. or so with um, either current clients who have never disclosed abuse, who now it's all getting, you know, totally stirred up and they're finding this moment, they're finding the courage to disclose Wow, calls, you know, for people who want to come to therapy, a teenager who just told her parents that she was abused when she was 10 and now she's speaking out. Um, someone who was abused uh, at a young age and um, had dealt with it at the time, but now she never really went back and, and spoke about it again. And now she's a teenager and this, you know, the whole, um, it's brought it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's brought it up again. It's like, this is, you know, every, every therapist is working overtime right now. I'm sure. And, um, the messages that we're giving our kids right now count the messages that we're giving our kids right now count. So when I saw, you know, some very, very, uh, painful and disappointing statements coming from certain rabbis, um, you know, saying that the takeaway here should be that we don't speak slander about people and that, you know, it's incredibly painful how much that's setting back um, the, this work that we've all been doing over the past decades of helping people have the courage to come forward and feel that they will be believed. Mm-hmm. And if we give our kids the right messages now and the healthy messages, we are this is an opportunity to create a healthier generation than what we've had before, depending on how we speak about it. So I'm happy mm-hmm. to give some guidelines about speaking to kids and also to address the issue of what to do with the books. Um, there's also some of what has come out is, you know, there's a concept of yichud. There's some religious concept that they're actually very wise uh, mm-hmm. at their core, which is that, you know, an unmarried man or woman or child and, you know, adults should not be in a room alone together. Um, and that people should be more careful about that, okay? I'm assuming, and I don't know, you know, he wasn't accused of rape, of forcing anybody, more than his power and his ego and his, you know, coerciveness. But, I don't, you know, I didn't hear that he threw somebody against the wall so that, that some people are saying it could have been prevented had someone not gone into a room alone with him. But, of course, a lot of this just puts the onus on the victims, Um, which is exactly where it doesn't belong now. And here, what you're saying is that this is what we have to open up and say, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. When we speak to children, to our children, even in a preventative way, it's a really important point. And the education up until the last decade or so, um, you know, I remember when I was in kindergarten, we did like learning about like stranger danger. And if someone, you know, an old man tries to offer you a candy that you say, don't no. get into a car with a stranger, exactly. right. all these kind of things. So um, a couple points for parents who are listening and, and wondering about how to talk to their children now in a way that's going to be most productive. So one thing to keep in mind is that most, the vast majority of abuse happens at the hands of someone that is known to the child and trusted by the child. The majority is within the family. Um, whether the extended family or the immediate family, sibling abuse is very common. Um, and if not within the family, the next most likely category is um, someone like a family friend, a neighbor, a teacher, a coach, a counselor, um, someone who is known to the child and trusted by the child and the family. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're not teaching our kids about strangers. We're teaching our kids about absolutely anyone 
who, um, who touches you or does anything to you that's uncomfortable, um, that gives you a bad feeling in your tummy. Um, I'll give just the technical definition of sexual abuse for adults to understand, and then we can talk about how to explain that to kids. Sexual abuse of a child um, includes any time or any way that an adult or a teenager or older child uh, uses that child for their own sexual gratification. Okay. So anything that fits into that category of sexual abuse. So that could be actually touching um, a child's genitals or having the child touch, touch their genitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be looking at a child undressed. It could be exposing themselves. It could be showing a child pornography. Um, it could be uh, talking sexually with a child in a way that um, is, you know, gives the adult sexual gratification. But anytime an adult is using a child for sexual gratification, that's sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we explain this concept to, to our children, we have to, um, to really let it be, first of all, led by the child and depending on the age. But kids should know that there are adults in the world who have a, you know, a sickness, something wrong with them, and that they do things that are totally inappropriate and not okay with kids and private parts. Mm-hmm. And there are adults that, you know, show kids their private parts or touch people's private parts and that any of those things, anything having to do with, you know, with private parts and an adult in your life right. is not appropriate and it's not okay. And here's an important part when we're getting back to the idea of the victim blaming and the education that, you know, you and I may have received. Um, The message that we want to give to our kids is that if anything like that ever happens to you, I want you to come tell me right away. Mm -hmm. And not if anyone tries to do that, you need to say no and scream and run away, Mm -hmm. which is how children were educated. And what's really, really been discovered in research is that kids don't do that. Kids yes. do not do that in the moment. They're confused. They're talking about they're talking about someone they trust, talking about an authority figure, talking about a whole um, realm of sexuality that they totally are don't understand and are unprepared for. And it's very, very rare that a child in that situation is going to say no and yell and run away. Mm-hmm. It, by and large, doesn't happen. And when we educate our children to do that, and God forbid they get into a situation where they're abused then they're already feeling guilty that they didn't say no, yell, and run away. Right. They're already feeling that they did something wrong, and we're giving, actually giving them an obstacle from telling us about what happened because they already feel that they failed in what they were supposed to do. So when we're That's a hugely about, important point. It's really, really crucial. Um, so what we want to do, the most important thing we can do is let our kids know that certain behaviors do exist in the world, they're not appropriate. And that if that were to ever happen, I would never be mad at you. I would want you to come right away and tell me so that we can make sure that person doesn't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And that um, the parents will believe them. Because, yes. you know, especially what you're saying, if, if the vast majority are people that the children know. So how difficult is it for a seven-year-old to go to her parents and say, one of the parents' brothers, right, touched mm-hmm. me? Or showed me something or, you know, knowing that it could destroy the family. Not right. to mention that, from what I understand, very often it's followed with threats. 
Don't tell anybody. No one will believe you. You'll destroy the family or I'll hurt you or I'll hurt someone you love if you say anything. You know, it's your word against mine, that kind of thing. That's right. And I mean, I think that's why we have to, kids have to know. It's like if that happens something, let's say an uncle touches a child on a, over a, a family, you know, Shabbos. Uh, mm-hmm. bar mitzvah, right. Right. And parents are all hanging out talking and the kids are all running around and playing and no one's paying so much attention. And this, you know, creepy uncle. Right. And, and molests a child. Okay. Um, if the child has never been given a context for that by the parents, that there are adults who do this inappropriate thing with touching private parts. And if that happens, you have to tell me, how are they supposed to know what to do with that experience? How are they supposed to know how to file that or what to do mm-hmm. with it? So we do want to open it up. We do want to make our kids aware of it. We don't want to place the responsibility of not getting abused on them. Right. And then, you know, two, two really important points is that we should never see this as a one-time conversation. This is an ongoing conversation that unfolds as a child gets older. It's something to check in about. It's something that um, before your kids go on a class trip or on a, you know, a sleepover, on a something to mention again, hey, you know, we haven't mentioned this in a while, um, but, you know, we've talked before about mm-hmm. adults. Appropriate. It could be anyone. It could even be, you know, your counselors who you love so much. It's right. Like, inappropriate happens. You, I, w- I want you to let me know if anything happens that makes you feel uncomfortable. I'm here. You know, give me a call. Um, From what age do you do you start having that conversation, though? So, you know, start, starting um, healthy dialogue about sexuality, um, about bodies, and building a relationship where your kids feel comfortable coming to you if something goes wrong starts from, you know, from age two. Really? Um, wow. Really. Because, you know, what, this isn't something that we can accomplish in a conversation. Being a safe address for our kids is a, is a relationship. So... It's how we respond when our kids um, spill their juice. It's how we respond when they get in trouble at school. It's how we respond when um, they they fail a test or when they cheat on a test, right? It's our kids getting the message from us that, not that I will never get upset or disappointed or something like that, but I'm on your side. I believe you. We're working it out together. I'm not shaming you. I'm not blaming you. Um, that, that, that's, that's laying a groundwork for them to be able to come to us if, God forbid, they're abused, mm-hmm. um, that we've been a safe address all along. That's mm-hmm. the relationship that we want to build. Um, so, I mean, listening to what you're saying, this is an opportunity really to, to get a, have a better relationship with your child on all levels. Absolutely. This could, an opening to really a trusting kind of place as parents. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of other other things with young children, I believe that educating children to listen to their bodies starts from a really young age. Um, you know, with little things. When a kid says, I don't want to wear a coat, instead of saying, you have to wear a coat, it's cold, to say, take a minute, go outside, listen to what your body says. Does your body feel really feel like it doesn't need a coat? Let them mm-hmm. go outside and try. If they say, no, I don't need a coat. Okay, bring the coat in case they change their mind. Mm-hmm. When a kid I want another bowl of noodles. And instead of saying, no, you already had two bowls. You don't need more. Say, take a, take a minute, listen to your tummy. What's your tummy telling you? Do you need more? Meaning letting them learn to listen to their bodies, to listen to their body's cues um, is something from a very young age. Educating towards consent 
is from a very young age to not um, to not do things with them physically or ask them to do other things with other people physically that they don't like. Um, tickling, you know, right. I, it's really important when you're tickling little kids to every 10 seconds or so stop and say, do you still like this? Mm-hmm. Right? When you're being tickled, you can't really, it could be torture for some, you yeah. like it or not, yeah. you might hate it. Right. Right. Educate Interesting. To say, stop, ask if she still likes it. I know she liked it before, but you got to keep asking. Look at her face. Does it look like she's liking it? Mm-hmm. Right? When, when, um, when grandma comes and wants kisses and your kid doesn't want to give a kiss, <laughs> um, to right. stick up and get involved and say, grandma, she actually gives high fives. Or, you know, she's just not in a kissing mood. And right. to let your kid know that that's okay. Um, you know, I had an experience with one of my kids when she was about um, five. And we were at a, a kiddish at a bar mitzvah and someone... Um, she didn't know a friend of mine came over and stroked her face and said, oh, she's so cute like that. Mm-hmm. And the woman walked away and my daughter said, why did that woman just touch my face? Wow. Right. Mm-hmm. Said, yeah, that was kind of rude. You don't even know her. And she right. invaded your personal space. She invaded yeah. your personal space. We want to give our kids a sense of people can't just come over and start touching me. Right. I don't mm-hmm. have to touch in a way I don't want to. We want that to feel wrong to them. We want that to sound a little alarm for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, giving our children accurate names of body parts from a young age is, is healthy education that's going to help keep them safer. Mm-hmm. There's no, there are no body parts that we can't talk about. There are no body parts that like we can't say their names. Right. Uh, and it's also something that uh, there, there's research that kids who have accurate you know, um, anatomical names for body parts might be actually less attractive to abusers because Hmm. they could say specifically so-and-so touched my so-and-so. Right. Yeah. And that that it also gives them a message that, oh, someone's been like talking openly to this kid. Interesting. Whatever. Right. We want our kids to, to feel that they can just, you know, explain Mm -hmm. what's what's happening in their bodies, what their experiences without, you know, feeling ashamed or embarrassed about that. So one of the, the issues that's come up specifically because he was very prominent in the ultra-Orthodox world is that, is that discussion of what you're just naming now, that not just in the ultra-Orthodox world, but in any small-C conservative society, be it the Catholic Church or, you know, fill in the blanks, um, where there is a reticence about talking about sexuality, about connecting to your body, a lot of issues about modesty and dressing a certain way and not letting people see your body and not making, you know, the body the issue. Um, In addition to um, a heavy community load here about respecting certain people, like they can do no wrong, certain people are beyond the pale. So when it's specifically one of those people who's very much admired and revered even and seen as a symbol in this case, let's say of Judaism, that there is just, I mean, I'm thinking about these kids. It, it seems like almost too much to, to for them to have to deal with. Like, I, I would be surprised that anybody would ever say anything, given, right. you know, it's going to make the family name look bad and your older sister won't be able to get married because it'll come out that, her, that you were molested and it'll just smear the whole family. I mean, on and on and on. Uh, do you work in the ultra-Orthodox community? Are there... And, and is there, like, and I mean, there obviously has to be an awareness with whatever patient you have of cultural differences and the languages and the nuances. 
Is this, though, too big for the therapist? Does this have to come? You know, what we're asking almost for a societal change. We need, the whole society is going to need to change. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say that the whole society is changing. Is it? In the past decade, since I've been involved in this, you know, in this work and this advocacy within the Orthodox world, the landscape now is completely different. Oh, thank Um, God. um, You know, about... Uh, 13, 14 years ago, um, we organized the first awareness event that we ever did for Megan, which is an organization that, um, you know, that does this kind of work in Israel. And um, we were having a survivor speak and we were having a psychologist speak. And it was like, we hadn't done anything like this before. And we didn't feel that we could put the words sexual abuse on the flyers. Really? for the event, because that was like too crazy, you know, like that was like way too crazy. And, you know, even just the dialogue around this in all sectors of the community is moving forward. It has moved forward. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is an important thing for us to recognize that it's like these things can change. They change slowly, but they are changing. Even the amount of dialogue that's going on right now around, uh, around Chaim Walder, um, and the, you know, the fact that rabbis are coming out with certain statements and they're receiving pushback from those statements. Right. Um, that's not something that would have happened 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Also that you have a forum of very prominent rabbis whom people are going to if, they, if, they're, if they're worried and sometimes justifiably so about going to the police and filing a report and all of those things, that this is like a safe place from within the same world, okay, people with the same standards that you can go to and they will, then they check very, very carefully before anything. That's why he was never convicted because it hadn't gone that far. And, um, you know, so I think that's also hugely important. So this begs the next question, Miriam, is this something new? You know, like we're just here. It seems like every couple of weeks there's a story about this, not just in the ultra Orthodox world, but just in general. And I think to myself, what, what the, (laughs) so what is going on? Is it, is it because now there's internet and porno and things are more available? So where people might have had these lusts and these yearnings, but they didn't act on it. Now everybody, things are, people are more free to act on it. Has, so has this been going on? And it's, it's, it's an impossible question for you to answer. And I apologize because you don't have data from 200 years ago. But what's your gut sense? Is that this has been part of the human condition for I a long, that. long time? And now it's coming out and that's actually a healthy thing or that there's more than there used to be? I don't think that there's more than there used to be. My gut sense and just anecdotally speaking to, you know, at least people in my mother's generation mm-hmm. um, and what she knew about her mother's generation, there's nothing new happening here. Um, The fact that we have internet and we have social media and we have um, movements supporting people and taking away the stigma um, is allowing us to hear about it more. So it seems like there's more. But um, my sense is that this has been, uh, you know, certainly abuses of power in the realm of of sexuality have been around since humans have been around. You Mm -hmm. know, it's stories in the Torah of Amnon and Tamar and, you know, abuse within the family like this this is something that um that that has happened that continues to happen i think that in earlier generations no one spoke about it people didn't have a vocabulary people didn't have any idea of children having rights you know that mm-hmm. wasn't a thing children were to be seen and not heard and 
um, children's function was to, you know, serve the family and be in the family business. And it wasn't like a, that, you know, right. I don't think it was such a concept of teaching children to listen to themselves and, and to have that autonomy, mm-hmm. have that autonomy. And, um, you know, so many stories that I've heard from women in my mother's generation was that like, this was just an, a part of life. It wasn't like even something to, to speak about. So, you know, more mm-hmm. when we speak about teenage girls, um, someone told me a story that her, her parents had friends who would come over, you know, one night a week to play bridge or to something. And they would like, you know, have this kind of social thing. And one of the husbands was creepy and everyone knew that's the creepy, that's the creepy husband. Mm-hmm. And even when the daughters were teenagers, he would try to like pull them to sit on his lap and, to and, you know, touch them in, mm-hmm. in appropriate ways. And that, so everyone just knew like, stay away from him. Right. Uh, yeah, I I can definitely relate to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what do you think happened? You know, what do you what do you think that guy did? If not to this family, to other young girls, what do you think was going on? And it was just right. part of life. Someone else told me her first job when she was fifteen. Um, this was in the in the in the sixties. Was in a bakery, and every time she would bend down to get something out of one of the lower things, her her boss, the bakery owner, would you know, his hand would creep up. up. Right. Yeah. Right. And she told her mom and her mom said, uh, walk with your back to the wall when he's there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This was just part of being a girl, part of being a woman. You're going to get groped. Part of being a child. Yeah. You're Mm going to have to up with some. Well, I don't know of anybody. I didn't grow up in New York, but I don't know of anybody who would take, who takes subway, any woman who's ever taken a subway who hasn't been groped repeatedly. I mean, it's almost part of the ride when it's all crowded. So, you know, you focused on, on children and on, you know, empowering children with the knowledge and, and the closeness to work in order to be able to be honest and, and not be, you know, ashamed and to come out and say anything. But what happens when it comes to older, not just girls, also boys, apparently he went both ways on that. And he's certainly not the only one where you're already 16 or 17. And it's, it's not, it's a different headspace, you know, it's more of a coercion. And then it's a whole different, I would imagine, feeling of like, well, well, maybe I kind of said, okay, or I gave the messages that, you know, no five-year-old is giving out sexual messages, but a 16-year-old girl, oh, she dressed a certain way. I mean, we've heard that over and over, especially when it comes to rape victims. She wasn't wearing a miniskirt, she wouldn't have been raped, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So what, what advice do you have already for, you know, or even apparently he, he coerced, you know, married women, which is a whole separate issue. Um, If, you know, was there, if there's already, um, you know, mutual agreement, then that's, I don't think that falls into the section of sexual abuse, but there's such, there's so many grades here, you know, so many different parts of this. When we look at abuse and whether something is consensual or not, right. Age can, you know, an age difference is one factor, but we want to look at the power differential regardless of the age. Okay. Um, for example, sometimes, you know, there, there are cases, let's say, within a family where a younger brother will abuse an older sister who has special needs, right? Hmm. In that case, it's not about the power differential isn't due to the age, but right. there's a power differential nonetheless. Right. So whenever you're talking about someone who is in a position of power, um, it's, it's very hard to, you can't really talk about consent, right? right. So even if you have a teenager... Um, you know, another case that came out in Israel over the past couple of weeks in a girl, from a girl's high school from years ago yes. where a female teacher abused many students. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
who who weren't five, you know, they were 14, 15. Right. Uh, but when you have, you know, your teacher, your rabbi, your um, pastor, anything, anybody yeah. in a position of power, your therapist. Yes. Yeah. And who's in a position of power. And I think with Chaim Wilder, you know, uh, all the more so with someone who's in a very publicly um, revered position, you know, in, in the society that you're in, mm-hmm. uh, then it's, it's very difficult to talk about consent. And especially when you're dealing with someone who's very manipulative and who's, um, you know, making you, telling you that this is for your own good or that no one's ever going to believe you and you have, you know, you're vulnerable in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, those same, you know, those same um, dynamics could exist that would be in an age differential, but just in other types of, of power differentials. Right. You know, it occurs to me, I mean, here you are as a female therapist that, you know, some people probably feel more comfortable going to women therapists now, or just women in general, feeling that there's less of a chance of any kind of abuse. But unfortunately, and I'm sitting in a place where I look at, you know, the big world, where a a lot of men are having a lot of trouble for a lot of other different reasons. Like there's suddenly every man is a potential rapist. And there's been a lot of different movements that have also accused men unfairly of things just because they're a man. And so to some degree, there's a danger here of that happening also. I mean, there are some wonderful and amazing male therapists. Most rabbis are incredible people who will give marvelous advice and are tremendous examples on how to live a moral and upright Jewish life. And there's a potential here for some kind of pushback on that level because, oh, he's a man. So, you know, there's, there's just so many issues here. Wow. Personal thing that happened um, to me a few weeks ago, and this was before Chaim Walder um, died, but Mm -hmm. after had come out a couple weeks after, and um, a, uh, I'm going to change the details of this Please. Of, um, story, but um, a mother of a client of mine contacted me and said that um, since, you know, since my, my son heard about the Chaim Walder story, he just told me that he feels like he hasn't been able to trust you um, anymore. Wow. And he's afraid that maybe you have some other agenda for him. Huh. Um, so hearing about this, you know, this, the story about Chaim Walder and that the people he abused were his clients and therapy, right. right. Um, it, it opened up a window for him of maybe therapist, maybe my therapist is bad, right? Huh. Maybe my therapist has some other hidden agenda and maybe she's not really, um, she's manipulating me. Mm-hmm. Manipulating exactly. In some way. Hmm. Um, and so the collateral damage is so massive, you know, like the reverberations of this. And you're like, yes, will men be unfairly suspected? Probably. Probably. Will be not trusted by their, you know, teenage clients? Probably. Mm-hmm. And like, none of it is fair. And it's all part of the, the collateral damage of the abuse. And I think that the more strongly we speak out against it, the more we protect everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what I mean? Like in, yeah. all, in all points of society. Mm-hmm. So there is um, another question that's come up because he was such a prolific author and some people really loved his books. And I mean, this came up a few years ago, I remember, with a, a prominent rabbi who'd also written tremendous books. I mean, I enjoyed his books on, on the weekly portion. And then it came out that he liked his male students way too much. And it was it was clear that, you know, he was doing this and he was exiled to another community and it didn't matter. And he was told not to teach and it didn't matter. And the discussion came up then, and it's continuing now. What do you do with those 
quote unquote wisdom of this person is because this person has been seen to be really like a horrible person in so many ways, does that make their insights onto another subject that also, you know, inadmissible? And should people be throwing out his book? Should they be crossing his name out of the book so his kids don't know it's him? Should they be burning the books, which is especially for Jews, like that's a big deal. Right. It's a big question in terms of in general, you know, if we look at historical figures who, um, you know, were slave owners or who, you know, then do we... Anti-Semites. I mean, maybe I shouldn't read Shakespeare. Yeah. Exactly. Roald Dahl, right? People have been saying. Right. Um, Where does it end? I think the more historical distance we have, the the, um, emotionally... feels, you know, we could, we're better equipped to deal with that dissonance, perhaps. Um, whereas when something is more current and in our time, you know, it's a, um, it's a more, uh, it's a harder question to grapple with. I think speaking specifically about Chaim Walder's books, um, I don't think there's a, you know, a right and wrong answer. Um, and I think, and I, I actually want to do, I'll, I'll combine this, this answer with how do we not overexpose our kids Okay, please. These horrible events. Um, I think it's really important when having any of these conversations, and especially the Chaim Walder conversation with their children, to sit with each child individually, quietly. It's not for the dinner table. It's not let's all say everything we know because kids who haven't heard certain things might not need to know about suicide. You know, younger kids might not. It's like for each kid really adapted to them and that the conversation should be mostly listening. So to mostly say to your child, um, do you know who Chaim Walder is? Right. Right mm-hmm. there. Maybe your mm-hmm. kid doesn't even know who Chaim, you know, like, it's right. Like, you don't need to. They didn't look at the author of the book. Yeah. They, there was a book uh, they liked. If yeah. You have mm-hmm. heard anything about Chaim Walder recently. Hear what mm-hmm. they've heard. They've heard a ton in school and they have a lot of questions about it. Maybe they've heard from other kids and they're really mixed up with what they've heard. But just start with listening. Right. The, um, you know, the basic details of the story do need to be. Um, to be shared, that everyone thought Chaim Walder was such a great guy, and he wrote these books that people loved, and then it turned out he was hurting children. People. Right, and, and women. Right. See what they, that, for a young child, that might be enough. That mm-hmm. might be enough. For another child who says, hurting children, how? Right. You know, they right. create things with them or touching their private parts. Why would someone do that? Meaning, let the child lead the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I about the books as well. I, I think um, let the ask your child, what would you like to do with his books that we have here? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a couple of his books. What do you want to do with them? Right. Let your child have some agency um, and have and make space for their feelings. Although there might be differences of opinion between if there's multiple children in the family. Some That's kids true. may say, out and the, other, the kid may say, but I like the pictures and I like the book and what's the difference? Uh-huh. So maybe one right. kid can one book in their room and you could, you know, talk Interesting. about Interesting. And one kid could go tear one up, you know. Like- so, so where do the teachers fit in here? Because one of the, a lot of the discussion that's been happening here in Israel is that the schools are dealing or not dealing with it. And the kids are coming home saying, "My, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that the school therapists have been called in. I'm assuming. And are talking to the teachers about what if this comes up in class. But then you have a situation where it's not a cozy around the dining room table with your parents and your three other siblings. There are now 30 kids in the class um, and the teacher who's not necessarily equipped for this either. Right. And, and so what, what's your feeling about how this is being dealt with in the educational system? I think that it's being dealt with extremely inconsistently and everyone's mm-hmm. sort of doing going on the fly. 
Yeah. yeah. Parents should take the responsibility to speak to their own children. Okay. Uh, and to start with listening, what have you heard in school? Right. right. Because they have, and maybe they haven't. Mm-hmm. And maybe tremendously damaging things in school. And maybe their teacher dealt with it in a way that you feel really comfortable with as a parent. And I think everyone's, you know, I can understand from a school's perspective, leaving it to the parents. I could understand them feeling like, oh gosh, we have to say something. I, I think everyone is kind of reeling and, yes. and dealing with it on the fly. And that we as parents, it's the time to, to say, mm-hmm. All right, I don't know what's going on in school. I'm going to find out by speaking to my child. I think you could also reach out to a teacher, you know, have you, um, have you addressed this and what are you, what are you planning to say or what have you said? Mm-hmm. Um, the younger kids who you might not even get the full story for them. Um, right. But I think that each parent has to not assume that the school is dealing with it or dealing with it well. Mm-hmm. And then you have other situations here in particular in Israel where you have dormitories where a lot of the teenagers are sleeping in dorms. They're not even home every night to have the conversation. And there is stuff going on in the dorms which I have to say is one reason why my three boys all went to high school where they came home at night and did not go to dorm schools, even though some of them were excellent schools, because I had heard too many things about behaviors that were happening in the overnight, you know, in in the dormitory setting. It did not make me happy, to say the least. So there's that whole issue also, which is, you know, probably a whole section in and of itself, how the educators in that situation have to deal with it. Yeah. Wow, this is like, first of all, this is so heartbreaking. And I want to thank you, Miriam, for being there for, you know, for your patients, having a very busy practice that's probably just going to get busier, and for imparting some really sage advice um, to those of us who are listening. But I just have to say, first of all, somebody who has unfortunately experienced these kinds of things with people who are incredibly close to me, that... um, this is just a heartbreaking and that there are so many people out there who are hurting beyond hurt. Um, yes. And that there really has to be a very strong message. It is, is not your fault that every single victim is like you said, a survivor, you know, maybe using that word is an important word. Right. Mm-hmm. And that there can be absolutely no, I'm sorry, but no sympathy or empathy for the perpetrator. I'm, I, I'm saying that flat out. There's been a lot of discussion. Was he born like this? Did he take advantage of his rising power and find opportunities? I don't care. I Personally, I actually couldn't care less. That, you know, when I, when I, if he was talking about survivors, when I guide people through Yad Vashem, the interesting story in Yad Vashem is what do you do with the Nazis? Right. The, you know, there's a story of the victims. There's a story of the war. The Nazis were a part of the story. But where do you put them in there? So they have little black boxes all scattered around Yav Hashem with the story of the Nazis. Um, but they're not front and center. OK. Mm-hmm. And each one of them with their own whatever it was that made them inhuman humans. And that's I mean, this is my personal opinion. I'm not putting words. This is not Miriam. This is me. This is Eve. Uh, I don't really care how he was created. And uh, and I find it incredibly um, the lack of what's the opposite, the opposite of brave. Um, um, Coward. Wow. Cowardly that he that he killed himself. Um, but apparently his last letter was nothing about his victims. Just I hope this doesn't affect the sale of my books. So, you know, I, I really couldn't care anything about him, but it's the people that he personally abused and that other people are abusing and still abusing as we speak. It's going on. 
and what we can do to, to at least stop it no, and minimize it. Our, um, a couple things, and then I want to just share some resources with your listeners. Please. Struggling with this um, or looking for something to do um, that's productive. But, you know, the way we talk about this now and the dialogue, um, it, you know, Chaim Wilder doesn't, isn't going to see our posts or hear what we're right. saying. And likely, um, you know, hit the people who are victims of his are, are not either. But the numbers are still incredibly high of people who are affected by sexual abuse, people who experience it. You know, the estimate is about one in four. So if we think about our, you know, our friends on Facebook, right, them who are survivors of sexual abuse, our friends and family, and a quarter of them who are survivors, they are listening so closely to what we're saying about mm-hmm. this, to how we're handling it, to um, whether we are picking a side, whether we are speaking out and saying this is this is ridiculous. We can't equate, uh, you know, abusing children with. Uh, with speaking slander, you know, whether right. we're really willing to, they need to feel out. safe to be able to come out and say what's happening. And supported. Mm-hmm. So um, in Israel, there is, uh, I don't have any of the numbers in front of me, but everyone can look up online. I don't know if you, I can okay. send you in the notes. Um, Magen in Israel. Um, M-A-G-E-N. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a hotline um, in Hebrew and English, um, anyone who is struggling and needing support um, in America, there's an organization called Zaka, Z-A-K-K-A-H. They also, I believe, have a hotline that you can call or by WhatsApp and available to give support. Okay. Um, something that for people who just want to do something productive, uh, we've set up a Facebook group for people who want to write messages of support to Chaim Walter's victims that will be mm-hmm. delivered to them. Wow. Um, can do that in the Facebook group. It's called Sending Messages of Support to Survivors of Sexual Abuse. Um, and, you know, one some of the feedback that I've gotten from the group is that, you know, uh, survivors, not from Chaim Walder, but mm-hmm. just... Right. right. From the rest of them. Yes. Who are still um, are walking the earth. Yeah. Very, uh, reading all these messages and gaining a lot of strength um, and hope from them and, and feeling very supported. Okay. Um, Good. That's another um, thing that people can do. Mm-hmm. Well, there's so much more that I want to talk to you about. We don't have time, but I'm sure the people who are listening can find resources. Like I'm thinking of what, you know, you're talking about the parents talking to their kids, but I'm sure there's more than one mother or father who themselves were the, who were victims or survivors and never told anybody, maybe told their spouse, maybe didn't, and now have to deal with this with their children. And of course, protecting our children for most of us is like the number one thing that we want to do. But mm-hmm. this is triggering a whole lot of stuff for them as well. Uh, so there's just so, so many things here, and we could just go on and on and on. Um, so I encourage any of you who are, who are listening to, you know, if this, if this is something that you need help for or, um, you know, or support, to find it wherever you're living, Australia, you know, wherever it is. I'm thinking of the Arab world also, and I know that this is going on there. Also conservative small C societies where, you know, shame and and all of that. Um, And I'm sure that they, you know, I hope they have their own resources as well. And that um, if we even can just help stop this a little bit, then the numbers will be astronomical. And um, I just don't know what else to say except that, I, I just hope that we, like you said at the very beginning, and we'll close with this, that we're standing at a precipice and, and we can make some changes now. 
Um, so that maybe in 10 years or so, we'll look back and say, well, that was really the moment mm-hmm. where things opened up and where victims stopped feeling shame and where, you know, we were able to take this and move the world to a better place. So um, thank you so much, Miriam Friedman, for for everything that you do. Eve Harrow, Rejuvenation on the Land of Israel Network. Thank you, everybody, for listening to um, a show that was not easy (laughs) to do. And uh, and thanks to, to Ben and to Tabitha, also for editing my shows, which sometimes is not an easy thing to do for a variety of reasons. And I'm sure this one, it's obvious, um, is both his parents, um, that, uh, that this wouldn't have been simple. So take care, everybody, and goodbye for now. And I hope you're well wherever you are. And I promise that next week we will have a lighter topic because pretty much anything would be lighter than this. So um, take care, everybody, and goodbye for now.